Let's get into God's Word. We're in the last few verses of Acts chapter 2. And I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about this and, of course, not answer out loud. I just want you to think about this question. But what does your ideal life look like? What does your ideal life look like? Now, as you kind of think about that, I know some of you are immediately running toward lottery win or some big inheritance coming your way that you weren't expecting. Some of you immediately, when it comes to ideal life, you're thinking beach house. And the colder the weather gets over the next few weeks and months, we're going to be thinking a lot about, for sure, I should be on a beach right now. Or we think about my ideal life would be just not working and I wish I didn't have to go uh, tomorrow morning. And, and we can make a big long list of things that each of us as individuals would kind of categorize as our ideal life. Uh, but whatever it is, for sure, for sure, whatever your ideal life is, not a single person in the room is living it. That's no, that's no knock on, on you know, being in Barrie or being here in this particular moment or the, the time in the calendar or whatever. It has no knock on that. Really, um, it, it, no one anywhere is living their ideal life. doesn't matter where they are. Even if they are on a beach, even if they did win the lottery, they're not living their ideal life. But it is okay to have the ideal in front of you. It's okay. In fact, it's great to be reaching for something, to have purpose in life, to aspire for more, to have a purpose. In fact, we would do all of that, strive for an ideal, because the default setting is so very depressing. We don't want to become complacent or ambivalent about life, and we certainly don't want to go all the way down the road to defeatism, where life is just simply a chore. And we can never get ahead. Now, as Christians, foremost for us, I would think, is the ideal. If I was going to put an ideal in front of me, I've been thinking about this this week, in fact. The ideal that I would put in front of me is is to um, always resist the temptation to sin. An ideal would be to never sin again. How many people are with me? Okay, like way more people should have put their hand up there for sure. (laughs) Okay, some of you are like, I kind of like my sin, actually. (laughs) I just don't want to sin anymore. I just think that would be like an amazing ideal to not have to deal with that. All the implications, all the, all the effects and the consequences in my life and in the, consequence, uh, the consequences in others' lives. Or, or to be on mission for Christ. Like an ideal would be that I would never, ever shrink back from any opportunity to speak for Christ. I mean, I just wonder how many of us in the room have had the experience of God tease the ball up right in front of us. There's a person in front of us who's sharing their life and we know that we could share Christ with them. And in that moment, we just become so fearful that we back off and we don't say anything. And then like two minutes later, we're feeling so guilty because we didn't share Christ with them. Anybody else ever have that experience? But like ideally, would just never, that would never happen. Or, or we talk, we use this phrase that, that we are as Christians to be 24-7 worshipers of Christ. In other words, it's not just about the worship service. We'll talk about that more even in a bit here. But, but 24-7 Christians. And just to have this ideal in front of me and to actually achieve it, where I really do worship Christ in my marriage, in my parenting, in my relationships with neighbors and friends and unsaved people and in my workplace, it literally is worship of Christ in every single moment of my week. It's an ideal. 
And I get that it's not fully achieved on this side of eternity. Now, as we we look at the passage today, one of the criticisms of this passage is that it presents an idealistic picture of the church. I mean, here we are in Acts chapter 2, and some pretty remarkable things have happened in these two chapters that we've studied so far. We have this brand new, energized, fully engaged community of believers just days into the whole thing who are so zealous for Jesus and they're zealous for one another, for community. They're zealous for the mission. And it shows in this summary that Luke gives us of what the church was like. But as we look at this picture of this amazing church, the question in front of us is, is it realistic to take what we're seeing here and then to impose that on us, on the church today? Is it even fair to do that? Well, if, if the answer is no, that's not fair, it is idealistic, then we could just end the sermon right here and we could all get on to lunch. But as you might suspect here, the answer is yes. Yes, it's fair. Yes, it's realistic. Yes, we should be putting this ideal in front of us because nothing on this side of eternity is perfect and no one is living their ideal life, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. It's all worth reaching for. It's all worth living out in anticipation of the day when it will be ideal. And that day is coming. In other words, let's reach for the ideal. Let's live out the kingdom principles that Jesus is teaching us as best we can, as best we can. Let's live those out now. Now, if we're up for that and we say, okay, I'm in, I'm in, it means that we're going to be taking on some clear commitments as saved people in the church of Jesus Christ. One of these commitments, that's what we're going to look at in the passage. So let me read uh, these verses to you. So this is Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 to 47. I'm going to read this, we'll pray, and um, then we'll begin working through uh, this passage. Acts two forty-two, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, we're um, grateful again uh, to have your word in front of us, to be able to read it and work through it. Father, we know that it was a work of your Holy Spirit to inspire the writing of the scriptures, and it is no less a work of your Holy Spirit to convince us of these truths, to understand how they should be applied and lived out in our lives. And so, God, we need not just a, an understanding, not just to cognitively get it, but God, we need to be transformed. 
we need you to challenge us right now. That, Father, we would reach for the ideal of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, whatever you need to do to make that happen, do it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? With me? With me? All right, here we go. When I'm saved, talking to the saved people here, when I'm saved and join with God's people in the local church, I'm committing myself to five things is what we're going to see. Okay, these five commitments. And the first one is this, unapologetic preaching. I'm committing myself to unapologetic preaching. Verse 42 starts it out. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we could ask ourselves a few questions here, but uh, first among them, what exactly did they teach? They taught what Jesus taught. The apostles were teaching what Jesus taught. They were actually told back in chapter 1, verse 8, the mission that they had been given was, you're going to go to the end of the earth, and when you go there, you're going to be my witnesses. The thing that they were going to witness to was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he had taught them all about that. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, he laid out what is uh, commonly called the Great Commission uh, that he gave to the entire church. And he said, uh, this is Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, inherent in the word disciple is this teaching and this training that goes on. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All the things that I taught you over the three and a half years that I was on earth. All the things that I gave you between the resurrection and the ascension during that 40-day period of time. All of that. Go out to the entire world and teach people these commands. Now, that's the content. We're going to talk a little bit more about the content in a few moments. But we make no apology. We call this unapologetic preaching because we make no apology for the gospel. And it's a difficult message. We're not holding back, but preaching and proclaiming the whole counsel of God. When Paul was at the dock with the Ephesian elders and he's about to go to Jerusalem and he's sure that it's going to be his end. He says to the Ephesian elders, and this is Acts 20, 27, he says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I never apologized for any of it. I didn't soft pedal it. I didn't round off the edges. I didn't sugarcoat it one bit. I gave you everything you needed to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're committed to the same thing. Now, when you're into that, the thing that I think we all understand here is that the culture doesn't exactly appreciate the whole counsel of God. That you may even have, forget the culture, you may even have individuals in your life, friends and co-workers and family members who do not like the whole counsel of God, who do not like the gospel, who do not like the apostolic preaching. You may have people around you, and certainly this is true of the culture, they find the gospel offensive and unpalatable and difficult to believe. Nevertheless, these words are life. We have no other message. And the power is in the proclamation of this gospel and the truth of it. And then the Lord will use it as he wills. 
I don't need to worry so much about how the culture is going to respond to the gospel. I don't even have to worry so much about the people around me who I may present the gospel to. I don't have to worry so much about their response to it. The thing that should concern me is, am I doing what God told me to do? Proclaim it. The Lord will use the proclamation as he wills. Our part is simply to carry out the mission that's so clear. Now, as far as the apostles' teaching goes, we're talking about the whole of what we believe about Christ, about his life, about his ministry, about his mission, the entirety of God's redemptive plan. And we have to remember now, at this point in the story, mere weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Christ, they don't have the New Testament that I'm preaching from right now. All they have is Genesis through Malachi. They have the Old Testament, but there doesn't even, there doesn't even exist a New Testament. There is no Matthew through Revelation. And so they are counting deeply on this, this apostolic teaching, these, these 12 special apostles that have been appointed to proclaim and witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as foundational for the church. It had this special, unique authority from God. And in fact, when we think about, what are we talking about? When we talk about unapologetic preaching and the, and the apostles' teaching, what exactly is that? Well, it's actually helpful to go back to an ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, named for the kind of core of the teaching of what the apostles were given responsibility for. And I, I don't I just maybe ask a question, how many of you have ever been part of a church where the Apostles' Creed was said regularly? How many people? Just raise your hand up. And how many of you, hands raised, I didn't tell you to put your hand down. Do you ever hear me say that? I didn't say put your hand down. I mean, how many of you have your, it was part of you, do you still remember it? How many of you would just say you still remember the Apostles' Creed? That's great. So here's what we're going to do right now. And of course, I was an old Anglican, so we did this uh, every week in church uh, when I was a kid. And um, the thing about Anglicans is they're like super good at this, okay, right? Because they, they say the prayers out loud all the time, so they're really good at congregational recitations like this saying the creeds and generally speaking evangelicals like us we suck at it so anyway so so what i'm going to say right now is we're going to try this we're going to say the creed together there's a cadence to it folks you got to just fall into it and let it kind of go and you know what i'm talking about there's a thing to it you just kind of got to go with it nine o'clock did great so pressure's on here we go ready i believe Amen. I think the Anglicans would be so proud of you right now. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing uh, that and saying it out and believing it. This is what we unapologetically preach. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And at the end of the service, we're actually going to sing a song called This I Believe, and it reaffirms um, 
uh, what we've just uh, heard in the creed. All right, so that's the first one, unapologetic preaching. Here's a second uh, commitment that we make, uh, unashamed worship. Unashamed worship. Now notice verse uh, 43, awe, you could circle that word, awe came upon every soul. Now, in light of the things that were happening, people were just like, and we're talking about the teaching and the miracles that were happening and all these people who, you know, 3,000 who came to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people all over the city of Jerusalem getting baptized as a testimony to that. And so all of that had created this awe. Now that word, we've talked about that before because it comes up a lot in the scripture. That word awe, one commentator kind of packaged it nicely because it can go in two very different directions in terms of meaning. Got these two little triplets of words. It can mean panic, fear, terror. Panic, fear, terror. Or it can mean reverence, respect, awe. Now you look at the context here and, and you get a sense that it should be the more positive of those two sets of words. That what we really see here is amazement and, and wonderment at what God is doing. This is a sense of awe, in fact, that's compelling the people toward the worship of God. The Cambridge Dictionary defines awe this way. It's a, it's a feeling of great respect, sometimes mixed with fear or surprise. Let me say that again. A feeling of great respect, sometimes mixed with fear or surprise. And I would even say that biblically, sometimes it's fear and surprise. That it's both of those things happening at the same time. And I would think that that's something that we would want here. We would want to have that, that sense of awe happening here. There's just such a respect for God in light of the things that he's Doing and a little little tinge of fear there because he's so powerful and he's so other than us. I would want us to have respect and fear and surprise and awe before our God. And Luke says, in fact, that this awe that was happening, that, that it caused this worship to be very much a part of their regular lives. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple and, the, and also in their homes, they're getting together. Verse 47 says, what are they doing? Praising God. They're worshiping him from this sense of awe at what he's doing. Now for us, worship has become this like intentional, very planned out, very scheduled thing. And for this first church, again, we're talking about the ideal, but for this first church, it was much more spontaneous and, and it was self-evident and it was just the natural result of what God was doing in all of their lives and all around them. And what, what we've done is we've taken worship and we've just kind of boxed it. And, and worship is kind of in the box and it's up on the shelf. And then once per week, we take the box off the shelf and we put it on the table and we'd open it up and we do worship. And when we're done, we put it back in the box and back up on the shelf. And in, in a great respect, what worship is, that box, just kind of taking it down, it means it's not really much different than my job box or it's not much different than my grocery shopping box. It's just another thing that, that is a block on the calendar, another thing that I do. That's not great. For these first Christians, worship was a natural outflow of a transformed life and of the uncommon community that they were part of. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. 
I mean, they were so deeply impacted by the salvation that they'd received so that they were gathering for worship and gathering for the word and for prayer every single day in all these various locations. It didn't matter where they were. They'd get a group of people together and just praise God. And they had no shame at what God had done for them, nor in expressing their heart toward him. Now, this is the thing. It's, it's unashamed worship. And I think so many of us approach this worship. We take the box off the shelf, we open it up, and we come to it, and then we don't even really express ourselves. It's shame, isn't it, that holds us back? From perhaps raising our hands, from, and not that that's mandated, but from being more expressive and clapping, from singing. I don't want the people around me to hear. I don't want to look too energized about this. To really fully engage in what's happening, even just even prioritizing. Maybe we'll go this week, maybe we won't. Or if someone asks us, hey, would you like to come over on Sunday? And it's like, well, we can't because we're busy. But you don't actually say because there's some shame. I'm going to church. I'm going to worship with God's people. It's unashamed worship. Unashamed worship. These people didn't matter who heard them. Singing, praying, hearing the scriptures. Under great threat from the religious leaders who weeks before had killed the Savior. They had no shame whatsoever at praising God because of all he had done for them and what he was doing. Namely, notice in the text, the many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. You say, well, I think I would be more unashamed in my worship if we were seeing all these signs and wonders and, and mighty works and miracles happening. I would, be, I would be less ashamed if that was the case now. Well, just because we're not seeing the same kinds of miracles and healings, maybe not with the same frequency or even the same kinds of miracles that accompany the apostles' teaching does not give us an excuse And it certainly does not mean that God is not working. The fact is, even by the end of the book of Acts, and we're going to study it over a lengthy period of time, but even as we get to the end of the book of Acts, you see the signs and wonders tapering off, and you see the ramping up of the teaching of the Word of God, and the emphasis is on the proclamation of the gospel, not the signs. And Jesus was constantly cautioning us about looking at the signs. It was never about the signs. That's true today. God still does occasional miracles. Amen? He still does the unexplainable. And that is entirely God's prerogative to do it how he wills, when he wills, and if he wills. But the salvation of souls that we see today, that's the miracle. That's the mighty work that God is doing today. And Jesus, in fact, set us up for this. John 13 through 17 is the incredible section called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus downloads so much on the disciples just prior to the crucifixion. And in the, in the middle of chapter 14, this is John 14, 12, he says this, Jesus says this to the disciples, whoever believes in me, 
will also do the works that I do. He did some pretty awesome works. Feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the blind. I mean, he did some incredible, raised the dead, cast out demons. Look what he says to them. He says, you're going to do these signs and greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. He's talking about the ascension. After the ascension happens, of course, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them with power. And that's the scene we're seeing right now. The mighty works of God is that Jesus is not physically present with us right now. And yet we see his continued work through the power of the Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. We're the ones accomplishing the greater works of leading people to faith in Christ. More, more important that one should come to Christ than that 5,000 would be fed a meal. That's the greater miracle. The greater works are not simply physical healings that may last for a mere lifetime. If that, again, feed 5,000 people, they're hungry three hours later. Lead someone to Jesus, that's eternal. Sin's forever forgiven. The greater works are not simply physical healings that may last a mere lifetime, but spiritual healing that takes us into eternity. And for that, we worship him. And so if you've been saved, think about the greater work in your own life. If you've been saved, if your sins have been forgiven, if you have punched your ticket for heaven, then you should be worshiping him unashamedly, daily praising him without reservation. How about this third one? Unceasing prayer. That's another commitment. Among the key things that the first church devoted themselves to, again, verse 42 was the prayers. The fact that there's a definite article in front of this means that uh, the author Luke was probably thinking about the formalized prayers in the temple, and that was certainly part of it. But it wasn't just that. If you go back to chapter 1, they were already praying, and it wasn't just in the temple. It wasn't just the formal prayers. They actually had an attitude of prayer after the ascension, and they were just kind of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and just before the day of Pentecost, in fact, they set apart Matthias and they brought him in and they prayed over having this new apostle take that 12th spot. They were a praying people right out of the gate. It was their attitude of unceasing prayer that defined them. And it shouldn't be lost on any of us that what we see happening here with potentially thousands of people Think about this now, 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost and now they're making their way to the temple. They're going for prayer time in the temple. Thousands of Christians showing up in the temple courts to pray. Now if you rewind a little bit to Luke chapter 19 and you remember this scene, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes into the temple and what he noticed was that a lot of the area of the temple, the court in the temple was being taken up by, by, by merchants, by money changers. Jesus was incensed. He turned over tables and he upset the whole operation. He cast them all out of the temple. And he said while he was doing it, 
This is in Luke 19, 45 and 46. It is written, my house shall be called a house of, what is it? Prayer, house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What we have now is all these Christians. They've been saved. They have the Holy Spirit. They're flooding the temple with prayer. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. It's returning. These Christians are returning the Jewish temple to a house of prayer. As it was always intended. A Thursday night, we had a gathering, a prayer and praise night here, right here in this room and it was a sweet time of prayer together. And um, I have said it before, these are, these are never, by the way, these are never uh, big numbers of people. They're always like smaller, smaller gatherings of people. But I, I've said the reason for that is because prayer is the hardest thing that we do. As Christians, prayer is the hardest thing that we do. Oswald Chambers, in My Utmost for His Highest, I'm using this devotional right now in the morning. Um, Oswald Chambers said this, in the natural realm... Okay, as human beings in the natural realm, just living out our lives, prayer is not practical, but absurd. It's absurd. Doesn't make sense. It's not practical that we should pray. He goes on to say, in the teachings of Jesus Christ, he's now going to tell us what prayer should be. Prayer is the working of the miracle of redemption in me through the power of God. In other words, prayer I've made the declaration that I follow Jesus Christ, but it's in prayer where the real transformation is happening that allows me to actually act like I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So there's something going on in prayer that isn't even like the foremost thing that we ever think about. So prayer isn't about, this would be practical. Remember he said, prayer is not practical, but absurd. Prayer isn't about the list of things I need from God. That would be practical. God, I have a need, or my friend over here has a need, and I'm praying for them. You are a powerful God, and all the resources of the entire universe are at your disposal, and it would be great if you could unleash some of that on me to meet my need or meet my friend's need. That's practical. That's logical. That's rational. And that is not what prayer is. Prayer's absurdly about me transforming my life by the power of the Holy Spirit by aligning myself more with God. Not my will, not even my friend's will. I'm aligning myself with God's will. I, I want what you want. I want my heart to be your heart. I, I, in fact, want to be more like you. Prayer isn't about the list of things I need from God, but is about my personal transformation. Prayer is about knowing God more intimately and becoming more like Him, and therefore must be the unceasing habit of every Christian. All right. That's three. And the, the astute among us have noticed that these are the pillars, the four pillars of our church, right? You see unapologetic preaching, unashamed worship, unceasing prayer, and here's the fourth pillar that we talk about is unafraid witness. 
The passage um, concludes in verse 47 with the comment that, that these Christians had favor with all the people. In other words, the citizens of Jerusalem were just showering them with favor and, and respecting them. And, and so much so that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the fact that they were actually still gathering in the temple was an evangelistic strategy all in itself. The fellow Jews who were attending the temple for prayer would be drawn into the gathering of Christians that would be happening in some corner of the, uh, of the temple courts. Perhaps the Christians were even greeting people as they were coming into the temple. Perhaps you'd like to come over and hear one of the apostles as they present a message about Jesus. Thus, the mass conversion that we saw on the day of Pentecost of these 3,000 people who came to faith in Christ, that now gives way to this steady growth that becomes the new norm for the church in the days and the weeks that followed Pentecost. The Lord just adding people to the church day by day. Now, the favor or the respect of the people flowed from uncommon community. And again, we'll talk about that in a few moments. People were experiencing something that they hadn't experienced before in terms of how people were caring for one another. And the fact that people were being drawn to this should not, drawn to them, should not be a surprise to us. The fact that people were being drawn to the church should not be a surprise to us. Again, going back to that upper room discourse in John's gospel, Again, chapters 13 through 70, but in John 13, 35, Jesus said, actually, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not that you would have love for them. I mean, it's awesome if you have love for people outside the church, but the thing that's going to be really attractive for people outside the church is how much we all love one another here inside the church, how much we care for one another here. That's going to be a draw to them. By its very nature, it's evangelistic. But I like, even though we're saying that, okay, so, so, so much of this depends on us loving one another and being this witness for Christ. But I like that Luke is absolutely clear about the one who's doing the saving. Right? It's, it's God who saves. It's 100% his work. Notice that it's, God who adds to their number daily those who are being saved. Those who are, so God's doing the adding and, and also it's that they are being saved. I know how much you guys love the grammar, right? This is another one of those divine passives where the saving is coming upon me. I'm not affecting the saving myself. It's God who's doing the saving, and so evangelism really is this divine human cooperative by God's design that we would have a part to play in it and God has the biggest part to play in it in the actual saving of people. The people would not be added to the church or be saved apart from the incredible impact of the church loving one another and the preaching and the sharing of the gospel that had been entrusted to them. That's our part in it. And in fact, John Polhill says this, Luke's summaries, and by Luke's summaries, he means um, chapter 2, verse 46 is one summary, and then uh, 42, rather, 242, and then 43 to 47 is a second summary. He expands on the first one. So Luke's summaries present an ideal for the Christian community. There's that idea of ideal 
that, that, that thrust that we're putting in front of ourselves, present an ideal for the Christian community, which it must always strive for, constantly return to and discover anew if it is to have that unity of spirit and purpose, uncommon community, essential for an effective witness. This is what we should be like. And so I would just say, when it comes to unafraid witness, I would say to you, I'm speaking to the believers in the room, my fellow evangelists, my fellow witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who are you inviting? Who are you inviting to be here? Who are you showing the love of Christ to who needs the love of Christ shown to them? Who is on your prayer list? Who are you praying for to be saved? Who are you serving sacrificially in Jesus' name? Who are you telling your story to? I mean, if you're a follower of Christ, there was a point in time at which you understood that you were a sinner and you confessed that and you embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. There's a whole story, a backstory to that, and then the transformation and what Christ has been doing in your life since. Who have you told that story to lately? And then, and then perhaps the hardest part is who have you explained the gospel to itself? Who have you gotten the scriptures open with? Or who, who have you taken to a webpage or to a booklet to say, this is what the gospel is, and let me explain to you how you get into a relationship with Christ? I'm so encouraged, in fact, that many of you here do these things. In fact, this week I was uh, sitting, uh, having a, a coffee with a businessman in our church, and I was reminded that many businessmen and business people in our church use their businesses as a platform to witness for Christ. And they do it at risk to their own businesses. They do it at risk of saying to a customer that they may now lose, I think that what's going on in your life, with what's going on in your life, you, you should hear about Jesus, and I'd really like to invite you to my church. They risk losing a customer. And I appreciate that so much. The physician in our church who talks to patients about Christ because he knows the real healing comes from Christ, not from him. I think about the people in our church who, who, who invite strangers in line at Walmart or in the park or at their kid's school. I think about all the invitations that go out and all the people that I get to meet in Guest Central who come in who say, I don't know what her name was, but I was in this business and I talked to my doctor and he told me I should come here. And I love that we have that spirit of invitation and that, may that be blessed and may that grow and may that be in all of us as we understand our responsibility to be unafraid witnesses of Jesus Christ. Now, one tool that you can use, especially in the explanation of the gospel, is this booklet, Five Gospel Words. And uh, this is available at hbc.info. You can find it there. 
um, electronically and you can link to it and pass it on uh, to those who you think might benefit from it. But we have, for all the analog people in the room who prefer booklets, paper and such, uh, we have uh, lots of copies of this in our resource center and at Connections and you can stop by and pick up as many of those as you need and uh, learn that and be able to explain the gospel to someone and keep those handy and maybe even pray this week about who you might explain that to this week. All right, one more. Finally, when I'm saved and joined with God's people in the local church, I'm committing myself to uncommon community. Uh, We could also say here uh, unconditional love. Either one of those would work, but we talk commonly about this. The context in which these four pillars that we've just explained, the context in which the four pillars are to be practiced is the local church in relationships that are knit together by the Holy Spirit into this uncommon community. Some have asked the question then, um, why isn't uncommon community just a fifth pillar? Why wouldn't we just make it a fifth pillar? And the reason is very uh, simple, in fact. We see the four pillars as the things we do. Okay, track with this now. The four pillars are the things we do, and the uncommon community is the context in which we do them. That is to say, everything we do is to be characterized by love. Love saturates all. This is the ideal. Love saturates our teaching and preaching. Love saturates our worship. Love saturates our prayer life and our evangelistic efforts. If you come in through the the center doors off the parking lot into the west lobby, the first thing that you'll see when you come through the double doors is on the wall that says, love God, love people. And then to the two sides are the four pillars. And when Jesus was asked the question, What's the most important commandment? Jesus answered and said, Matthew 22, he said, the, 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 the first and greatest commandment is to love God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. He said, on, on, on these two commandments, everything else hangs. All the law and the prophets, everything comes off these two things. And so number one and number two on the commandment hit parade, love God, love people. Everything else, the four pillars included, everything else comes after love God, love people. That's preeminent. So uncommon community is not one of five things we do. It's the way we do the four things. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? So we could even look at it this way. I know some people are like visual learners. So here's, this is for you, the visual learner people. We're building a spiritual house called the church. The foundation, of course, is Jesus Christ. The four pillars we've talked about, unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration or worship, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness. And then the roof that covers it, covers the whole thing and the context, the thing that makes the house is this roof. It's uncommon community, unconditional love lived out by those who live in the house. And so... With that as our kind of grand explanation and why this is so important to all the other ones, notice verse 42, they were devoted to, in addition to everything else, they were devoted to the fellowship. You see that? The Greek word there, some of you know this word, it's koinonia. It's a wholesale sharing of life with others. And this is reinforced throughout the entirety of this passage. So we're going to jump around a little bit. Verse 44, all who believed were together. Now, that's not so much about location that they were all like in the same location. This is a statement of unity, not proximity. 
It speaks to their unanimity. They were in one accord. They had true oneness of heart and mind. And that was manifested in one very practical way. The verse goes on to say that they were all about the breaking of bread. Now that refers to a couple of different things. I know it's come to mean just like one thing uh, to some Christians, but it, it means a couple of things in context here. The breaking of the bread was, first of all, just getting together for ordinary meals, just people eating together. And there's something special about getting together for a meal. We say something about the level of a relationship when we say, hey, would you like to come over for dinner? Let's get something on the calendar. Let's, let's, um, let's grab a bite to eat. Let's, let's plan a picnic together. Let's, let's get together for a barbecue. Let's, let's, let's plan a potluck together. Let's order in. You just love food. And it helps us with our... You know, around here, um, around here in our ministries, we serve food with a lot of things. And on Thursday night, we got together for this like, really serious praise and worship night. And uh, we prayed intently, and it was a beautiful time. And then when it was all done, we left this room, we went to the lobby, and we had nachos and salsa. Right? Prayer and worship, nachos and salsa. They just go together, don't they? Do you sense that? Because we just feel like it's awesome to have fellowship together, to share in life together after we've had this intense time of prayer. And so people didn't just like, amen, and everybody went out to the parking lot and drove home. People went out to the lobby and stayed for a half an hour or 45 minutes, and we talked and we shared life together around nachos. You know, we could talk here, just edit the scripture a little bit to talk about the breaking of nachos together, right? The breaking of nachos together. So that's one thing. It's important to have food together. But then also, this breaking of bread refers to the celebrating or the observing of the Lord's table or communion while they were together. And, and we've, we've compartmentalized this as well. Communion was not for them a separate formalized church ritual as it is practiced today for us, but it was a regular part of the meal. In fact, we have an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's not a good example, by the way, but it is an example. The church showed by practice that what it would do is get together for regular meals. And people would bring in, you know, they would do potluck and everybody bring food in and they would gather for this big meal. And then whoever was hosting the meal might stand up and say, maybe at the beginning of the meal, they'd take bread and break it and say, this is the body of Christ. Let's share it together and, and remember his sacrifice. And then they take a cup and bless it. This is, take a cup of wine and just say, you know, this is the, the blood of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And let's drink it together in gratitude for him and his sacrifice. And they'd pass the cup around. Everybody would take some of it. And then once they had remembered Christ at that meal, then the food would come out and everybody would just share in that time together. So those two things were like fused together in the early church. And so this is what we see, verse 46. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That word generous in the um, ESV is translated in the NIV and, and New American Standard Bible as sincere. New King James Version has simple hearts. They shared it with simple hearts. And the idea from one lexicon is this is about sincerity. There's no hardness. It's about generosity flowing out of our hearts. So their hearts were soft and tender, easily touched and giving. There was no selfishness, no withholding on their part. Where there was a need, they gave. So simple. So sincere. 
And because they had that, it led them, verse 44 says, to having all things in common. Their, their oneness in Christ and with each other evidenced itself in generosity, verse 45, so much so that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And there were lots of needs. You just have to jump over to chapter 6, in fact, to see that a lot of widows were coming to faith in Christ and were part of the church. And there was a whole deal about feeding the widows, making sure they were taking care of them. And that's just one of several examples we see in the book of Acts in the early church. Now, what's curious about this is how they're finally living out what had been given to Israel in the Mosaic law, but they weren't living out. In fact, you could jot down this reference, Deuteronomy chapter 15, around verse 4, says that for Israel, there was to be no poor among you. The other nations might have poor people, but Israel shouldn't have any poor people. Well, the fact of the matter was, Israel did have poor people. But they were to take care of one another. They were supposed to be different than the nations around them. And having received Christ and been filled with the Holy Spirit, this brand new church understood and lived out the Old Testament command from Deuteronomy chapter 15. They didn't want to have any poor among them. They were going to take care of them as a church. And so listen, for us, it's about taking care of one another here. So that if we hear that there's a need, we're going to respond to that. And we do that. I know a lot of you know about this and and many of you don't, but we have something called our Hope Fund. And Pastor Roger oversees this area of ministry and we just seek to help people who are in tough places. It might be a a tough place financially, or it might be that they just need some encouragement because they're in a tough spot, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, whatever it is. And the Hope Fund, we, we try to be super generous according to the spirit of what we're reading here. And I remember in a former church that I was part of, you know, if, if we found out that a single mom had a need for a washing machine, we'd kind of survey people around us and find out if anybody had a, an old washing machine that they were giving away. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, if someone's given away a washing machine, it's because it doesn't work well anymore, and they bought a new one. And why would you take that broken washing machine and give it to a single mom? Doesn't it seem to you that the church should be better than that? So like we just got, I remember we've had this Hope Fund since the very beginning. I remember like in the first few months of the church, we heard about a single mom who needed a washing machine. And I said, call Sears and have one delivered on Thursday. Now we can't call Sears anymore, (laughs) but we can call the brick and we can still get a brand new washing machine in that single mom's home on Thursday, right? We can so we had, we've always had this hope fund, and here's what's awesome about what's happening in our church these years, is some of you don't know about it because we don't take offerings for it anymore, but we used to. We used to take regular offerings every month during the communion service. We'd take a special offering at the end of the service for the hope fund, and we'd just replenish it. And then what happened over the years was, y'all just kept giving to the hope fund. So much so that there's always thousands of dollars there ready to respond to any need that comes our way. And, and you just replenish it. You just keep filling it. And we're able to help people. We send kids to camp for families that can't afford it. We buy brand new appliances for people. We pay electric bills. We do car repairs. We send people to conferences. We help them with counseling. We do all kinds of things through this Hope Fund. Every single week, someone is being helped in a very generous way. Because you love them. Because you're uncommon community. And you're expressing that through the simplicity of your generosity. And I know that that thing beyond the Hope Fund and what the staff is able to do, I know that many, many of you are caring for one another in your small groups in a very similar way. And I commend you for it. And let's just have more and more and more of that. Amen? 
more generosity, more caring for one another in the church. All right, that's our five commitments. And let's just bring this in for a close. These two chapters are about the power of God. They're about the reactions to and the results of that power in the lives of all these people. And the question for us is, how do we as a church see that happen today? And in Luke's summary, it comes down to this. Here's what Schnabel said about it. The growth of a church happens when the church has the right priorities. We want our church to grow. That's the ideal. But it's going to happen when the church has the right priorities. This is not a question of strategy or method, but a question of reckoning with the power of God. We're all about strategies and methods, but that's not the way the church grows. We're very intentional about what we do here, but those methodologies are not the power of God. And if the church is distracted or preoccupied with things that are not the four pillars and not uncommon community, if we're distracted by anything else, then there's little wonder that there's no manifestation of the Spirit amongst us. The onus is on all of us, every individual Christian that's part of the greater church to make these commitments as we seek to be the church and to have all things in common. Let's pray. Father, again, um, a message that none of us can escape. I pray that in these moments as your word has been proclaimed that there would be uh, those here who have been taught maybe something they didn't know before. Maybe they're new in the faith. And for them, it's a a moving from ignorance to enlightenment in this moment and a greater understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And I rejoice in that. For others here, they came in discouraged and maybe today something was said that lifted their spirit. And for sure, Father, there are many here who are harboring rebellion in their hearts. I'm talking about genuine believers who have rebellious thoughts and and actions, Father, small and big. And I pray, God, that in this moment, you would be rebuking each one of us and speaking into those matters that require repentance and that your Holy Spirit would show us and give us the courage and the faith to act in the way that we know we ought to. So God, what we're asking for is a continuing work of your Holy Spirit in our midst, in each one of our lives. Father, we're desperate for it. We can't do it on our own. We need a move of God, a mighty work to happen that would transform us. We pray this in Christ's name.